Welcome to the St. Rita's Family Medicine Podcast. Today we'll be talking about screening for lead poisoning. To discuss this with me, I have Dr. Robert Zoukas. Dr. Zoukas is board certified in family medicine and one of the leaders of our family medicine residency. Dr. Zoukas, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. So before we get into the screening aspect of uh, lead, I want to discuss specifically lead poisoning. So what are the complications or conditions that are associated with lead poisoning, namely in children? So a lot of the symptoms that we see in children are nonspecific. We see things like anorexia or constipation. Sometimes it's a nondescript abdominal pain or stomach pain. And then that goes all the way up with, with higher and higher levels. It goes all the way up to neurological damage that can be permanent, behavioral disorders, drops in IQ, and academic failure. Sure. And is any of that reversible? Um, from what we understand, uh, while we can try to drop the lead levels, those effects can a lot of times be permanent. Sure. What would be the risk factors for developing lead poisoning? So the two things that we see nowadays are exposures, um, and that has largely been eliminated by the drop in lead paint use and lead gasoline use back in the uh, late 70s. So we don't see a whole lot uh, of exposures from lead paint as it's used uh, currently. Uh, the other thing that we, we do see is culturally there are some lead compounds and lead products that are used for uh, kind of home remedy type things. And, and so those are important issues to watch for in children that uh, come over from foreign countries, either as immigrants, refugees, uh, kids that are adopted from other countries, those types of things. Mm -hmm. The other things that seems, the other thing that seems to play a role in it is iron deficiency. And that seems to be uh, due to the fact that when a kid is iron deficient, the um, lead and, and iron are, are absorbed by the same uh, tra transport mechanism. And so whenever a kid's iron deficient, those transport transporters are upregulated. And so if there's lead, a uh, kid comes into contact with lead, then they tend to absorb it a lot more uh, hmm. than they would otherwise. So interesting. So have we seen any trends in um, lead toxicity or the screening for uh, lead toxicity? So we have. We've seen quite a bit of change ever since the late 1970s. Um, around that time, approximately 78% of children between 76 and 1980 uh, tested positive for high lead levels. But then due to the restrictions on lead-based paint and lead-based gasoline, those numbers had dropped to 4.4% uh, from 91 to 94, which is a drastic, yeah. drastic drop. Uh, now, uh, 1999 to 2004, it was 1.4%, and I'd say we hover around that just based on our uh, Ohio data and national data. That's been the trend for the last several years now. Okay. Interesting. Well, well, let's get into the screening aspect of uh, for lead poisoning. So... Until uh, I started digging uh, deeper into this, I didn't realize that there was any sort of controversy surrounding this um, and that there are multiple medical organizations that have different uh, recommendations that kind of span the, the whole breadth. So the one, or excuse me, the guidelines that I did want to discuss were from the Ohio Department of Health, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the AAFP, and the United States Preventive Task Force. So let's kind of go and, and take these separately and discuss. So. First sure. off, for the AFP, that tends to align with what the USPTF uh, has said. So what are the U uh, USPTF guidelines? Right. So the USPSTF is um, there. They find that there's insufficient evidence um, to assess the balance 
of screening between or the balance of benefits and harms of screening for elevated uh, blood lead levels. And this is in keeping with USPSTF is, is an organization that's very careful about their um, about the data that they use. They're uh, typically uh, very trustworthy. And so if there's not a, a significant harm or benefit one way or the other, they tend to land in the middle with insufficient evidence. I think it's important to point out that insufficient evidence doesn't mean evidence against. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that there's uh, uh, there still could be and there still are benefits uh, to screening children uh, when, it, when it's necessary. Sure. So what does the uh, AAP say about uh, lead poisoning screening? So the AAP um, in, in more recent years has um, they, they've encouraged us to schedule screenings for one year and two years. Um, lead levels do peak um, at around 24 months at two years, so it's important to realize that that's uh, uh, the second kind of important landmark uh, time mm-hmm. and to, to go ahead and screen. Um, they also recommend uh, for, for areas or localities that have higher lead levels, uh, whether that be due to older housing, uh, that sort of thing, they encourage some um, guidelines to be adopted for local communities. Sure. So. Well, next let's talk about what the Ohio Department of Health has to say about this. Sure. So the Ohio Department of Health um, encourages that all children who are on Medicaid or eligible for Medicaid be tested at the ages of 1 and 2, 12 and 24 months. Um, and that's that's kind of a steady uh, Ohio state law to, to be adhered to. Um, also, if, if a child has a risk factor, uh, something as far as dealing with exposures, you know, are they exposed to houses that are built before 1979 or, or uh, to any people around them that have had lead poisoning or high lead levels, um, those types of things, then they should be screened as well. Yeah. And we're both have the, uh, the, uh, Ohio Department of Health guidelines in front of us. And we were talking a little bit about them, uh, ahead of time. I thought it might be beneficial to go through those a little bit and what is considered a uh, higher risk. So one of the things that, uh, I saw consistently across all guidelines is that it should be a blood draw and not a, uh, a finger stick in order to uh, diagnose that. Yeah, so that's how most um, most guidelines are, are situated. Uh, there is some room for capillary for finger sticks or for heel sticks in, in kids that are one or less, um, but there's, there's a necessity to confirm that with a venous draw. Sure. And then the other thing I found that, not necessarily a controversy, but in about the past uh, decade or two, it used to be the threshold... Um, for diagnosing uh, lead toxicity was uh, 10, I think it's micrograms per deciliter. Um, And that has been dropped to five. Um, Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. The CDC adopted that new level in about 2012, um, encouraging us to look at it a little bit lower. You know, we, we, there is no safe level of lead in a, in a child. There's, it's not necessary. It's a, it's always considered a, uh, an issue if there, even if there is uh, a level that's below 10, but greater than five. Sure. And then, uh, getting back to the Ohio law, Mm -hmm. uh, the Ohio Department of Health says that, uh, to test all children between the age of one to two years old, uh, excuse me, one and two years old, if uh, they have a risk factor. And the risk factors they include are if they uh, are on Medicaid, if they do live in a high-risk zip code, and you and I were looking at that ahead of time, and we found for Allen County, I think almost all the zip codes uh, fall into that. 
Um, if they uh, regularly visit a home or child care facility that was uh, built before 1950, but also if they're visiting buildings that were built uh, before 1978 and have deteriorating paint. Um, the other things that they mentioned, if they frequently come into contact with lead, which I think would be difficult to elicit from a, a sure. patient. Uh, sure. And that, you know, that actually speaks to the fact that a lot of these questionnaires, when the USPSTF did their evaluation of this data, they looked at the, specifically at the questionnaires to decide if those questionnaires were valid. And a lot of what they found was that there was a lot of variance between questionnaires mm-hmm. and that, you know, parents, parents who might be renting a home uh, don't often know when the home was built. Sure. Um, they're not sure exactly what uh, the situation situation is with lead-based soil around their house. They don't know, you know, exactly what's been, where the contaminants have been and where they've come from. So uh, that's that's one of the uh, thoughts raised by the USPSTF. Right. And then the other part of the guideline from the Ohio Department of Health is that if you do have a child between the age of three to six that, and they do have one of these risk factors, they should still be tested if they have not received that testing previously. That's correct. Yeah. Well, as a critically thinking physician with these uh, guidelines kind of uh, all over the place, I mean, what would be your recommendation to a family physician who sees pediatrics? Yeah, you know, I think I think all the guidelines, while they may differ in some aspects, are really going in one direction, and that's to making sure that we know our local, uh, what our local risk is, what what the exposures are. Um, if you have a battery uh, plant in your in your uh, particular area of practice. That might be something to really look at and, and check those kids as they might have exposures from their parents bringing home uh, uh, lead on their clothing or whatnot. Um, you know, I think really we look for high-risk areas, areas of town that might have older homes built prior to 1979, that sort of thing, and we uh, and we screen appropriately. Um, the the CDC has a, a great deal of data. Um, I think one of the other things that needs to happen is that there needs to be more analysis of the available data uh, to be able to help us as physicians to uh, be able to know kind of what we're dealing with and, and where we where we might be missing opportunities to help mm-hmm. kids. Really, lead, lead-based, lead poisoning treatment uh, is really a primary prevention issue. We, yeah. we need to stop it before it happens. Otherwise, we don't have too many options after it does. Um, the uh, when you look at the data that the CDC's brought out, uh, they you know, they list all the counties in Ohio, and they show that by and large most counties are testing somewhere between ten and twenty five percent. There are some outliers there. Um, in counties that test more frequently, uh, there doesn't seem to be a higher number of children that test positive or screen positive for uh, higher blood lead levels. So, you know, there, it doesn't seem as if the, the testing is underdone. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems like it's, uh, it's not as big of an issue as it, as it has been in the past, but there are some high-risk areas, and those usually lie in and around larger cities, uh, larger towns, uh, industrial-type places, places with older housing. Yeah. So, as a family physician, if you do test a, a child who is high-risk, and it does come back greater than five, what steps should you take next? Sure. So there are several ways, several things to consider. If it's over five, then um, the recommendation, if it's over, uh, if it's over 10, um, then there's an initial follow-up blood level monitoring, uh, blood level, lead level monitoring at about three months. And then um, 
and there's education that should be given. So uh, opportunities for reducing lead in the environment should be ad addressed and assessed. Um, a physician can also call their local health department mm -hmm. and, and have a, an evaluation or an assessment of the house made and, and those types of things involving the community uh, is important. Um, really the, the treatment for high lead levels is really the education, trying to cut down on the exposures in the environment until the levels get up to about uh, 45 or so. Over 45 chelation therapy is recommended. Under 45, it's, it's been shown to be detrimental uh, in, in treatment of these children. So the, the interval for testing and follow-up closes as the numbers get higher and higher, 20 to 44. Uh, usually there's um, two weeks to one month follow-up lead levels to see if they're dropping and additional labs that are encouraged. You know, there's a lot of times we talk about these risk factors for, for lead exposure but we don't really know what to do about them. Mm -hmm. And so there are some recommendations. If there is lead paint in the home, it's important that it be identified. And if there is going to be any sort of renovations or any sort of uh, dust that might be created from, from renovations or any other work done on the house, sanding or whatever, um, that that should be done by someone who's uh, trained to deal with lead-based paint and lead-based products uh, for proper disposal. Uh, if there's dust, as in that case, then a wet mop and frequent hand washing is encouraged. Um, drinking water, uh, if there's lead in the drinking water, there's a recommendation to flush the uh, system for about two minutes um, and then afterwards use cold water for cooking and drinking. Um, you know, other exposures, the, the folk remedies or home remedies, especially from other cultures, the recommendation is, of course, to avoid those types of things. Um, so, you know, those, that's kind of the, uh, the direction we take with treatment or with uh, trying to reduce those lead levels. Yeah. And you had mentioned working with the uh, health department, if you did have that. I think it's important to note that all lead levels that are drawn in a laboratory are reported to the health department. And it's been my experience with more infectious disease uh, results that come back abnormal that they will reach out to you as well and make sure that you're uh, addressing it and also offer some guidance as far as what to do for treatment. Yeah, that's usually correct. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dr. Sugis, any other final thoughts on uh, lead toxicity or screen for lead toxicity? I have nothing further at this time. <laughs> That's all right. Well, thank you very much for doing this. Um, no I think problem. this is a very important topic to uh, that we all need educated on. Uh, to our audience, thank you for listening. If you have any ideas for future topics or people you'd like us to speak to, please let us know. Thank you.